Play Misty for me. For Clint Eastwood, an invitation to terror. You ever find yourself being completely smothered by somebody? There's no escape in passion. There's no escape in speed. There's no escape from terror. You will change the locks, huh? Nobody asked you to wait for it. You're not jumping me, Buster Blue Eye. Get off my back, Evelyn. Play Misty for me. Get off my back. Play Misty for me. Get off my back. Play Misty for me. Get off my back. Play Misty for me. The most terrifying words you'll ever hear. Play Misty for me. The screen's most frightening plunge into terror. Have to get you all nice for David. I hope he likes what he sees when he walks in here. Because that's what he's taking to hell with him. Just hope we're lucky enough to grab her the next time she tries it. Tries what? To kill you. The next scream you hear will be your own. Happy Easter. Um, happy Easter. <laughs> it's 70 movies we saw in the 70s. I think, I'm, I'm sure I saw this movie on TV in the 70s. What about you, Scott? Absolutely. Absolutely. This, this one was a, a big movie for me in my development. It was my mom's, pretty much my mom's favorite movie. Mm-hmm. And she was kind of obsessed with this thing. Had she seen uh, it? In, in, in sort a, of a Jessica Walter way. Yeah. Had she seen it in a theater? Maybe she saw it in the theater. Uh, it's possible. Like she would go to the movies with my with my aunt a lot. Um, so that's very possible. So I mean, this movie came out what like a year after I was born. Seventy one. So it it might have been uh, uh, an instance of where my aunt Helen took her out and she's like, "You've got to get away from that kid." And you know, they went to go see this, which you know. Uh, psychosexual movie about uh, I don't know about an unhinged woman yeah maybe. seems like an interesting choice for her to recommend to you as a kid well it was just the kind of thing that I think it was on television and it yeah. was like oh we're gonna watch this um, but yeah yeah, I remember I, I, I remember watching this on TV as a kid and it, and it was one of a series of movies that um seemed clear it, it it felt like oh they're definitely cutting stuff out of this movie for tv yeah. and that's making me even more excited about it and like the filling in the blanks like the sort of and and, and actually i don't know you know i, I this was the same thing with the graduate where like it mm-hmm. seemed like they were obviously cutting out some nudity with um what's her name Anne bancroft mm-hmm. but then when you actually see the graduate uncut it's like no that's really just the editing style right quick flashes of things and you're not really seeing anything and so 
you know, uh, to, to skip ahead for a moment to like when the housekeeper birdie and like sort of the most sort of psycho shower scene in the movie mm-hmm. is getting stabbed all over the place. I got the feeling watching on TV that I was missing some of the bloodier moments, but actually I'm not sure. I, I don't know if they actually had to cut much out of this movie. It's interesting well, in that this is this is maybe our first movie that we're talking about that was actually rated R. Right. And I'm not Fuck. sure what it is about this movie that makes it any more R-rated than like um, Lifeguard. I mean, there's not more nudity than there is in Lifeguard, but there's there is more violence and there's some blood. But it's, maybe it's a combination of the two. Yeah, maybe. I just think that at some point the MPAA ratings became much more obsessed with um, sex over violence. And you could be as violent as you wanted to be and not get an R, but any kind of nudity would automatically get you that R. I mean, from what I read, they uh, the biggest uh, alteration on the TV version was during the, the Roberta Flack number. So they they subbed in uh, shots of them, you know, naked in the next to the fountain, not the fountain, the waterfall, which <laughs> just shots of them walking through the woods. Oh, um, <laughs> well, there you go. So yeah, maybe it was maybe it is that waterfall shot. Um, anyway, we're jumping the gun. We are going to talk about Play Misty for me. I do wanted to, I want to had a couple notes from our last episode, which was George Romero's The Crazies. Uh, one correction in that I was talking early on in the episode about the um, shot at the beginning of the crazies that I said was looking up the basement stairs from the uh, sister's perspective. It's actually the brother who's down at the bottom of the stairs watching his sister about to get attacked by their father. Um, so Right. But, it, but two things occurred to me after the episode that I was like, how did I never think of this? But mostly, the first one is, it dawned on me, I guess, listening back to the episode that both Night of the Living Dead and The Crazies begin with a scene featuring a brother and a sister. And mm. the brother is teasing the sister and, and in a weird way almost try, and trying to scare this sister. And in both cases, that teasing is interrupted by the appearance of like a real boogeyman monster. Um, so I, I don't know how I never made that connection, but it's very interesting to me that that those two things that those two movies start with that brother and sister, ex- almost exactly the same sort of dynamics. It's almost like he's he's sandwiching the opening scene with the closing scene uh, in in uh, Night of the Living Dead, where, where everything s- starts to happen in the basement, like specifically with the the daughter uh, killing the mother with a trawl. Is that, is that yes. what that thing is? Trawl. <laughs> yeah. I, I called it a spade, yeah. but that's not right. A trawl, no. I think, is much better. You have to call a trawl a trawl. Yes. Yes. Well, that's true. I mean, it does, it does harken back to that too, but I just, I, I think it's, I think there's something, I wonder if, if anyone ever asked George Romero about this. I don't know if George Romero had any siblings, but it's interesting that he starts his first two real horror movies off with, uh, with this hmm. brother and sister dynamic. Yeah. I thought you're, uh, I, I found myself thinking a lot about what you were talking about of the different setups and, mm-hmm. and how like maybe, uh, Romero was, had misread something that uh, Hitchcock was talking about where he did all the editing in his head, you know, and like how he, he didn't shoot any extra coverage. So the suits could come in and edit it for him. So Romero was like, Oh, that's the way you've got to do it. Um, but, but, but your analysis of, of Romero's style was 
Pretty great. Pretty spot on. And it had me thinking about it a lot since the last thing that we did. Thank you. My, my boss, Jim Healy, sent me a text and said, well, that was the best discussion of craft that you've had on this show with anybody. I was like, okay. Yeah, it's pretty good. Glad to hear it. So speaking of craft, the other thing that I was thinking about after last week's episode, or it's almost two weeks ago now, um, you know, we've been busy. You've been, you've been open starting a tour. You've been selling tickets for a tour, uh, winning a contest online. Um, (laughs) We've been recording lifers episodes left and right. So we don't have time for this nonsense, but the, yeah, the other thing that I that that occurred to me was something you said. Uh, we were talking about remakes um, of both Romero movies and John Carpenter movies, and you were saying like, yeah, you know, as bad as either one of us might feel about some of those Romero remakes, the, there's nothing worse than a Carpenter remake. And I started to think about why that might be, and what occurred to me was that maybe the Romero remakes are better. Uh, in that you like Dawn of the Dead, I like The Crazies, I also like Savini's remake of Night of the Living Dead, and that I wonder if the reason is because is because Romero's movies are built on these great premises premises mm-hmm. <laughs> concepts, which are sort of like so rich and ripe for people interpreting them and and doing things with them and taking them their own way, whereas Carpenter's movies have some good premises but more than anything are all about carpenter's very specific style his yeah his visual style and of course his music and so you take the carpenter out of the carpenter movies and you're not really left with anything if you're not going to uh substitute them with something that's equally and there is nobody i don't think there's anybody who has attempted to remake carpenter who even is in the realm of being as stylish and as like unique uh, a visual stylist as Carpenter, and so you take Carpenter out of Halloween, you take Carpenter out of uh, I don't know any of his movies, and you're not really left with anything. I mean, you're left with Rob Zombie, right? Thinking the what's interesting about Halloween is some guy stabbing people. Yeah, or <laughs> he's like, Let, let's get into the family. You know, yeah. let's let's find out why Michael Myers is Michael Myers. Right. Like, well, and it's like I think by you the completely way, missed the point yeah, of exactly. the movie. Yeah, like that. That's one of the great things about Halloween is that there is no fu- you don't need any fucking backstory. Right. And in fact, as soon even as, though you kind of do get backstory, well, you do, but it's not. You don't really get it until Halloween too, right? Like you, there's there's no suggestion that Michael is uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's brother in the no 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 no. but but you at least do see uh his first yeah murder yeah which by the way i one of the movies i watched on criterion before it left uh Uh black christmas yes okay was that the one you thought i was about to say no 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 go ahead um which i'd i'd seen maybe not all of but on cable and on tv sometimes and then sort of you know in the sort of post halloween world it usually gets a lot of credit for paving the way for halloween and i think that what people are talking about is that it's got these point of view right. shots uh from the killer but i always thought i was always kind of afraid to vi- revisit it afterwards cuz i did not want to feel like i've been insanely in love with Halloween and Halloween had taken too much from Black Christmas. I didn't want to be disappointed and find out that Bob Porky's Clark 
had actually <laughs> given Carpenter all the ideas for his, you know, brilliant uh, vision. And But I was happy to say that I watched Black Christmas again, finally, in a post-Halloween setting. And I liked it. Okay. It was fine. But I honestly, th- it's got nothing to do with Halloween. And, and, and Carpenter didn't really take anything from Black Christmas, except maybe for like the opening shot. Yeah, I mean, the last time I watched it, I, I was kind of shocked. I was like, oh, um, Carpenter didn't come up with this. Uh, and, and it is all Black Christmas. I mean, you've got to give credit where credit is due. Well, okay, so wait. <laughs> You're totally disagreeing with me. Okay. What is the, what is the, I what do you, what did you, are you talking about more than just sort of the opening kind of point of view stuff? No, not, oh, not okay. any more than that, oh, but, okay. I, but I am talking about that. And I am sure. talking about, you know, uh, you know, the, the, they're not babysitters, but they are sorority sisters. And there's, there's something similar in, you know, uh, a, 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 a sisterhood of something like that. You know, they're, they're both babysitters and, yeah. you know, it's, it's all women, um, well, and I would say that Margot Kidder's, Kidder's character is kind of like what's her name, um, the not Jamie Lee Curtis and not PJ Souls. Who's the third actress? Uh, Annie. Yeah, Annie. What's Annie? what's that actress's name? Uh, I, I, she's in the Fog, I, also. Yes, she is in the Fog, and I, and I can't believe I I don't uh, have it on me. But I. It's I, okay. People are yelling at their radios right now. Right, right. Or their uh, smartphones, whatever the fuck people listen to. Loomis, no? Yeah, Loomis. I think it is. Is it Nancy, Nancy Loomis? Nancy Loomis. Yeah. Nancy Loomis. Nancy Loomis. Right. Which is funny, because Sam Loomis and right. the Psycho thing, it's very weird. You know, what's funny is I finally got around to seeing uh, Pretty Maids all in a row mm. recently. Which we talked about on 70 Movies. Right. And one of the actresses in that is the, the actress who plays Judith Myers. Um, her name is Sandy Johnson. Oh. So it was, it was interesting. I was like, who is that? And it turns out it was Judith Myers. Huh. I was like, that's oh, cool. Okay. That's I recognized cool. her. Yeah. That's you a know. crazy movie. Pretty maids all in a row. Yeah. It was, uh, it was pretty interesting. It was, um, it was something else. I'm uh, glad I finally got to see it. Yeah. And I will say that although Bob Clark also made, uh, some other sort of horror genre film. He made this this movie Death Dream, which I think also yeah. was on Criterion recently. Very interesting. But yeah. I saw that movie a lot on TV as a kid. Uh, that used to be on like Saturday nights, and I would I remember staying over at friends' house, and we somehow would always wind up watching Death Dream on TV. And man, that movie scared the hell out of us. <laughs> so creepy. well, I find it interesting that you bring up Halloween because uh, th- there's some things in Play Misty for me that kind of remind me of Halloween. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that Halloween ripped off Play Misty for me either, but there's a couple of things. And you know what? Wasn't there an early uh, John Carpenter movie called There's Somebody Watching Me? It was like, it was like a it's TV like a movie? TV movie. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he might have gotten a thing or two from Play Misty for me for There's Somebody Watching Me. Specifically mm-hmm. that whole thing where you're constantly, every time it goes for a long shot and Play Misty for me, you're going, she's there, you know? Um which has kind of influenced how I watch suspense movies. Like, I can't watch a long shot which, without thinking the camera's going to pull back and the killer's going to be there. Yeah. And it's something that's... A, I, I'm the same way. And this, that, that's a phenomenon or, like, a technique that nobody has exploited to greater effect than this guy, Ty West. Do you know his movies? Uh-huh. Yeah. 
What's funny about Ty West movies is that more often than not, he'll put you through like a 10 minute tracking shot that ultimately leads nowhere. Like there is no payoff, (laughs) Uh but it doesn't make it any less suspenseful. And it's almost like funnier in a way because it's like you've got us without even doing anything. Right. He'll do the thing where the door is opening and closing and you keep waiting for the killer to show up and it never does. And he goes, I know what you were looking for. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's also like, even when I'm watching something like Caché, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like the way that you watch that movie always, um, I've been trained since Play Misty for me to watch movies that way. Yeah. So this movie has actually been kind of a building block for me. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and I was actually surprised to realize that it's that's that it it was released in 71 that it was that early. I would have guessed like 73, 74. I mean, I not that told, that's I, big of a difference. Gun on my head, I would have thought 74. Yeah, and um, you know, and clearly he is influenced by Psycho. Um, mm-hmm. and we'll talk some more about that. But let's sit before we really jump into it, let's just say that the reason we decided to do it is because we just lost Jessica Walter. Um right. and this seemed to be uh the best way to maybe uh pay tribute to her. Um and- I mean, th- this movie had been on my list um just because I love it and it it is important to me. Um but Oh, fuck. We were watching... What was the last movie we did? Crazies? Uh, yeah. So we were watching Crazies, uh, my girlfriend Justine and I, and I was like, oh, man, we got to... Or no, no, no. She's been watching uh, Arrested Development a lot lately. Just ha- have it on. Just have it something on in the background. And I was like, man, you've got to see Play Misty for me. I'm like, we've got to do that one of these days on uh, 70 movies. And then the next day, she was dead. And Justine sends me a text. She's like, we killed her. I was like, fuck. So then we moved it up. Um, And you're like, should we do this? Play Misty for me? I was like, yeah, I think we got to. Yeah, well, that's it, that's that's interesting that that's that that was your connection to Jessica Walter because that because honestly, when I was looking at her filmography and stuff, I was like, well, you know, I really Jessica Walter for me is Play Misty for me, and then Arrested Development, and like, you know, I. I've I've seen a bunch of the things in between, but you know, again, gun to my head. Be, you know, anybody asks me, Jessica Walter, what do you know her for? What do you like her in? And it's Play Misty for me and Arrested Development. But are there other Jessica yeah. Walter things that you you have been into over the years? Um, she was on. Uh, and speaking of another person that we lost, George Siegel. So she was she played his uh, ex wife on. He was on a show called Just Shoot Me. Which mm. I think is a really underrated NBC comedy, and uh, she was on that, and she, really funny. And I mean, they just died within twenty four hours of each other. Yeah. So, um, and they're both in this movie that I sent you that I haven't finished watching, and maybe you haven't watched it all yet. Bye Bye Braverman, uh, right? Like nineteen sixty eight, a, a Sidney Lumet film that's sort of mostly forgotten, but right. That a, was the second Sidney Lumet film yeah. she did. Right. Um, and so uh, I do want to catch up with that. And maybe we, we can find a way to talk about that if you check it out. And we both think it's worth talking about. I mean, I watched the first half hour. And I was like, man, this is right. This is right in line with Where's Papa and Little Murders. Another one of these like late 60s, early 70s, filthy New York City, <laughs> like heavily, heavily cast with Jewish character actors right um really you know very dark comedies 
so well clearly they got on well um mm-hmm. and you know they stayed in touch and I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure it was his influence that got her cast on just shoot me um yeah I- i'm guessing but uh but yeah, yeah. And like George they, Siegel they really work an, off well each other. Yeah, he's another guy really sad to see go, but uh, and was so heavily influential uh, for me as, as growing up and watching all of his movies and then other stuff. But I was a huge George Siegel fan, and Mike and I covered Roller Coaster, which you say you haven't seen. Haven't seen it. You need to see it. It's I'm aware of it. Movie. Yeah, I sent you. A Have link. you ever watched Just Shoot Me? Yes. Wait, yeah. Just Shoot Me is with, is that the one with Brooke Shields? Mm, I don't... What am I thinking of? No, you're thinking of Susan in the City or something. Oh, this is Suddenly with, Susan, Suddenly Susan. Suddenly Susan. Who's, this the, who's, is the, main, Laura, who's the main Laura star San of Just Giacomo? Shoot Me? Laura San Giacomo. Well, Laura, oh. Laura San Giacomo plays his daughter, and he owns a fashion magazine, and David Spade is in it. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, Wendy it's Malick. It's the David Spade thing, right. Yeah, it's uh, pretty good. Pretty underrated. Yeah. It's like, funny. Uh, Ted Lasso. <laughs> yeah. It's way underrated. Um, so, so okay. So we're talking about playing Misty for me on, on the occasion of Jessica Walter's death. But um, certainly we need to talk about Clint Eastwood. And um, I, I'm wondering... I think I know the answer to this, but I want to hear your perspective. I grew up in the 70s watching movies, and the inherent bias that I received about Clint Eastwood was that he is was a bad actor in bad spaghetti westerns, and that, you know, and between that and Dirty Harry, like, and I'm wondering if it was something that I received from my family, like my parents and my grandparents and their attitude about violent movies and about maybe right wing political leaning fascist <laughs> kind of mm-hmm. movies, which yeah. I think they interpreted all of these Westerns and 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 cop movies as being a part of. And that Clint Eastwood was basically just like a really bad TV actor who somehow had gotten a career going, but that he was extremely wooden. And I look back at that now and I'm like, no, that's crazy. And you know, at a certain point, like I shook that off and even as early as seeing play Misty for me, but play Misty for me was probably the first Clint Eastwood movie that I really knew and watched more than once. Um, you know, I didn't get into the Westerns until much later on. Uh, and I didn't really get into the Dirty Harry stuff until later on either. I, you know, the first the first Clint Eastwood movies that I think I saw in theaters were probably those um, orangutan comedies. Those uh, every which way but every loose, which way but loose. You can, yeah. Um, but uh, what about you? Did you? I mean, up- all that sounds all that sounds like Pauline Kael talking to me. Mm-hmm. You know, all that fascist crap. Yeah. Um, but what about the bad acting part? Because I don't think, I think that Clint Eastwood is a great actor, but I feel I like he had this reputation of not being a good actor. I think uh, that all stems from Pauline Kael, and it, and it stems from him just, you know, a bias against uh, people being successful, um, which he clearly was. And mm-hmm. I mean, this is the first movie he made where he wasn't playing a cop or a cowboy that seemed to like break through. Um, so he definitely had a chip on his shoulder about that. I don't know. I, I didn't get any of that growing up. Um, 
you know, I thought all those movies were cool and I like Dirty Harry and I like the gauntlet and, uh, Oh, that might be the first Clint Eastwood movie I saw in a theater. I think it was a day like I went to a theater and it was not the movie I was going to see. But after I saw my movie, I snuck into the other screen and it was playing and I loved that movie. Yeah, I love the gauntlet a lot. Um, I would I would even listen to the soundtrack, which which is crazy because it's a crazy soundtrack. <laughs> Who did um, the score? I don't remember, but it was all done with. It was all kind of a, you know, it's Clint Eastwood, so it's pseudo jazz, and it's all with all a bunch of flutes. Um, but right, I always had a respect for Clint Eastwood, and my dad liked him a lot. Um, and you know, he was he was sort of aiming right down the middle. Um, something that like for a second I was kind of like oh this is beneath you know not me but you know and then it wasn't until later like in the mid 80s that I began to appreciate what he was really doing and appreciate him as as an artist you know um but then I feel like like it's come around now and it's probably it came around to him being an artist around the era of Unforgiven and Million Dollar mm-hmm. Baby. Yes, and then, Unforgiven But since sure. then, I feel like the pendulum has swung back the other... I feel like the pendulum has swung back the other way to where people are like, oh, he's not that good of a director and he really does kind of suck and, you know, he's talking to chairs. Um, so well, I that think didn't help. we're back to unfairly uh, maligning him and not focusing on the work. Right. Just writing him off as a right-wing, you know, again, fascist. And that doesn't really speak to the rich, the richness of his work. You know, you think of things like white hunter, black heart, you think of bird for Christ's sake, you know, like he's not just this guy that everyone thinks he is. Right. And I also think it's, it's easy to, and it feels like it's deliberate that almost all of his movies, especially the ones that he directs and, you know, has more of a say in, uh, can easily be read in subversive ways and yep. and being anti-police and anti-government and anti-law and order you know and, and you know that that, that that there's an easy way to look at a, a bunch of his films and say well this this guy who's the protagonist isn't eastwood's not really saying he's a good guy or that you should be rooting for him that you know he's got his own problems and i think that that's really true in play misty yep for me um Watching it these days in the sort of Me Too era and this, you know, all this stuff, it's like, well, you know, it's it's kind of easy to see this film and be like, well, this fucking Dave Garver guy sort of gets what's coming to him, and he's really kind of an asshole and treats women in right. a not respectful way, and you know, this is this, you know, uh, there's a, I was reading, <laughs> I was reading the, uh, I mean, is is it is it misogynist this movie or is it about misogyny? Right. You know, it's right. It, it's it's really murky. Yes, and you can ask that question about most of these Clint Eastwood. Exactly. Movies. Is it is it advocating for this or is it just showing you this? Um, right. There's a. I was reading the Wikipedia, which I'll refer to every now and then about uh, Play Misty for me, and one of the. Uh, little anecdotes at the bottom of the thing was that in an episode it's like talking about how has this film shown up in popular culture and apparently in an episode of that 70s show fez i've never seen that 70s show do you know the character fez i don't know what yes oh i know fez who's fez so fez is the exchange student played by wilbur valderrama yeah okay so fez takes a date to a showing of play misty for me where she thinks evelyn is the hero 
So, uh, you know, I don't know how far off is that in, in today's I, reading. I, I, I think, I think, you know, her performance is the center of the movie. And when you walk away, you're that you're thinking of Jessica Walter and Evelyn. I mean, you know, Glenn, Glenn that's a performance that Glenn Close must have studied. Yeah. Yes, I kept thinking about Fatal Attraction this time when I was watching it and thinking how much was stolen from this movie yep. for Fatal Attraction and how much better this movie is. than. And I liked Fatal Attraction. I was really into it at the time. I haven't watched it in a while. But um, the, the original Fatal Attraction ending that they right. tanked is, is much closer to what happens in the middle of this movie where, yeah. uh, where Evelyn makes a, an attempted suicide, or kind of an attempted suicide. But, but in the original ending of Fatal Attraction, Glenn Close kills herself, but sets it up so that Michael Douglas is framed for her murder. And Right, which I, I'd still love to see. I think, but I was, it, I, I think it's available like on, on the DVD or Blu-ray or whatever. I was just thinking that it's probably a lot easier to find now yeah. than it used to be. Yeah. But when Fatal Attraction came out, I, I was incapable of enjoying it because I was so livid that, you know, I was like, fuck this movie. It's plain misty for me. And I'm like, will you just let it go? Now that's fine. Uh, yeah, I, I don't understand know that, that I now. did that. I don't think that I had made that that solid of a connection. No. Um, but it totally is. I mean, it totally yeah. is. It's ridiculous. Totally. I was that way with Terminator because I had seen this fancy French uh, art film in college called um, oh, La, La Jete. Jete. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I saw Terminator, I was like, what the fuck? This is La Jete. <laughs> Wait, they don't credit the screenwriter of La Jete in this goddamn movie? James Cameron is saying he had a fucking fever dream in Italy, and that's what this movie is? Bull fucking shit. You were laying in bed in Italy watching La Jete, motherfucker. You know. Yeah, it's like John, it's like, uh, John Hughes ripping off uh, that uh, Santa Claus, Dial Santa Claus movie, that oh, French movie yes. for Home Alone. Yes. And then his excuse for where he got the, the idea for Home Alone was like, well, I want a vacation to France with my family. It's like... That's not the excuse that you should be using. Yeah, you know, don't that, mention that, France, dude. <laughs> yeah, you were at the scene of the crime. Uh, we, uh, I'm, I don't know if I'm spoiling anything. We're, we're, we're planning, if Cinematech ever gets back into the theater, one of the series that my boss is planning is like a Bad Santa series that will feature that film, that's that uh, Dial M for Santa Claus, or whatever it's called, uh, has recently been, um, whatever, restored and, and re-released or something. Restored, yeah. Yeah, so we're going to be screening that. I yeah, think. I saw it for the first time this last Christmas uh, when I went, went into a deep dive for Christmas movies. And I think it's on Shudder, right? Or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it was okay. on Shudder. Yeah. And I ended up seeing, um, down, what's the Christopher Plummer movie? Yeah, um, uh, Silent Partner. Silent Partner, which I, I love. Uh, it's one of my new, new favorite movies. That was another movie I saw on, on cable in the 80s and was like, whoa, this is fucking great. I had no idea it existed. I was like, and then once I saw Curtis Hansen's name during the credits, I was like, whoa. Yeah. And directed by Daryl Duke, who every time I see his name, I think it's the captain from Captain Tennille. But that's Daryl Dragon, I guess. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, the captain can direct a movie, man. <laughs> yeah, no, he, he'd probably be really good at it. Yeah. He's got a nice hat that, that he can use. Yeah. He's, he's ready to play. Yeah. 
So uh, let's let's go for it. Let's talk about play. Mis- let's try to go through it. I know that I feel like lately we've been like not going step by step through yeah. the movie. I've been not. I doing feel the that same way. <laughs> I kind of I kind of did this time. Um, so the movie starts with a helicopter shot above the cliffs in the Pacific Ocean. I'm so glad you brought that up. Should I let you read the whole thing, or should we pause? No, go ahead. As no, 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 no. We're going to pause and break into this all the time. Seeing, I remember going to see, or my dad taking me to see Sudden Impact, which is one of the Dirty Harry movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I saw that at the theater in Zion, and it starts with a helicopter shot. And I remember even then thinking to myself, "Man, Clint Eastwood really loves helicopter shots," you know. And I remember reading an interview with—I forget who it was, but it was some you know, great director. And he was talking about, you know, most new directors, they get, they get behind the camera and right away they want to go for the helicopter shot. I'm pretty sure that guy was talking about Clint Eastwood because <laughs> yeah. all of his movies had the helicopter shot. Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up. Sure. And I wonder if he now is into uh, drone shots, which are the new helicopter shots. You know, you see those in movies all the time. He's probably settled down. He's probably like, I don't need to do that anymore, kid. Well, what I was going to say, was you were saying Eastwood. that you feel like the pendulum has swung back and that people are thinking of Eastwood as a fascist dickbag who has no talent. And uh, I don't know if that's true, at least in my circle of cinephiles, but um, the reputation that he does have is that it's like make the day at all costs. Like he is not interested in doing right. more than one or two takes of anything at any time. And so he's famous for getting right. productions uh, finished before they're supposed to be and for less money than they're supposed to be. But he's also acquired this reputation of sort of coming off on set like he doesn't care. He just wants to get the shots and move on. Right. He's not worried about anything. He's not thinking about quality over time or anything like that. Right. He's the but anti-Kubrick. I mean, that's, that's the stuff that he's learned, from, I would imagine, from Don Siegel. You know, it's just a, shooting economically and, you know, it's problem solving to make the day, you know, yeah. which can lead to great things. Yeah. He, so, he's not concerned with bullshit. He's just straight ahead. Do your fucking job. Hit your mark. And let's get the next shot. Right. And talk about a guy who a director who's directed a ton of movies, but but doesn't have a distinguishing uh, visual style other than I think that period in the 80s where he'd seem to be convincing his cinematographers to use as little light as possible. And so he's got these movies like Bird and uh, mm-hmm. Tightrope uh, mm-hmm. and and maybe a couple of the Dirty Hair movies, which I remember, I just kept remember every time I would read a review of one of those movies in the newspaper, it was like, right. you can't see this. It's too dark. You can't, who knows what's even happening on screen? It's so dark. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, but his movies, like as far as content, there's tons of content in yes. his movies and, and the way his movies work in dialogue with each other, mm-hmm. I think is fucking fascinating. Yeah. Um, he's super important. Everybody can fuck themselves. Yeah. So the other thing about this opening shot is that there is no music. There's just the sounds of nature. Right. And uh, one of the things I love the most about this movie is that it's got no, and I've talked about this on other episodes before you came around, this issue of diegetic music versus non-diegetic music. And those are the, the differences. Like diegetic is um, music that's in the movie because somebody's playing a radio or somebody's listening to something. And so it's part of the actual right. 
action of the movie. And then non-diegetic is like a musical score or music that you're hearing, but not because somebody on screen is listening to anything. And so this right. movie, as far as I can tell, does not have any non-diegetic music until like two thirds of the way through when the movie takes a sort of a, a break and becomes this Roberta Flack music video, as we talked about right. before, where suddenly like uh, first time ever I saw your face is played in its entirety. Right. And I still think that that's the only instance in this movie where you're hearing music that isn't actually part of the action. I the the music at the very end when uh, when I, when he's go, going to the house I, I I don't feel like that's diegetic. I I think that they're trying to have it both ways. I agree with you. Okay. And I was going to talk later about the fact that there's some things that there's some rules that Eastwood seems to set for himself in this movie, but either he is he enjoys sort of bending them or breaking them, or he's not disciplined enough to really follow through. And there are two of them. One of them is this diegetic, non-diegetic music thing. And I think you're right. Towards the end, in the climax, there's music playing. It could be the radio. It could be in the house, like his show that he's got on on tape that he's running. It could be that yeah. that's what we're hearing. But it's not totally clear. Because it, it is sort of jazzy. You know, it's not suspense music by any means. It's Right. No, it's not. It's really bad music if it's not diegetic music. So you bringing that up changes the entire scene for me and I enjoy it more. So I, I hope you're right about this. I think I am. But I do Good. think that they that that they deliver that, that he's like and, and I and I think it works wonderfully because I what I'm what I'm also gonna say is that I'm I just talked about John Carpenter whose movies would be nothing without his scores. Um, but I love thrillers that don't rely on music to tell you when to be scared. Um, yeah. But I also wonder if those movies like this one that don't rely on 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 an actual suspenseful film score to to guide you through the thriller, I wonder if those are more effective for me because they live in a land where most thrillers do have scores, and that if you know if no if no movies were using scores or no thrillers were using scores, would I be as excited about something like Play Misty for me, which? finds ways to scare you and keep you in suspense without that sort of guiding track. Right. I, I remember they had like a thing on the DVD of Psycho and they, they, they wanted to illustrate how important the score was. And so they showed the shower scene with the score and without the score. Mm -hmm. I remember watching that and I remember uh, a friend turning to me and was like, oh, well, it's better without the score. It was like they had completely made the case <laughs> against themselves. I was like, oh, interesting. Well, famously, uh, in this non-John Carpenter episode of 70 movies we saw in the 70s, uh, you know, Carpenter's first test screening for ex screenings for executives and stuff for Halloween, nobody, right. un people were like, this is a piece of shit because he hadn't yeah. put in the score. He yeah. hadn't put in all those stingers that he does, the you know. Right. Uh, you know, which is. I've never tried to watch Halloween without. I mean, I don't. Know if, I don't even know if you can watch it without the score. But I wouldn't want to. Like, I. But you I, shouldn't. I, yeah. No. I would imagine that it's that it's not as effective. <laughs> uh, no. But still looks great. Um, I mean, you want to talk about John Carpenter on this sure. John John Carpenter episode? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> I mean, at this point, he is just as important as a musician as he is as a filmmaker. I mean, his influence with those scores is mind boggling. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and he and he clearly loves that because he can have some control over it. He can go out on tour with his son and he can play these songs. And by the you know, way, he doesn't have to deal with any of that shit. Uh, Jim Healy and I went to Milwaukee and saw John Carpenter on tour last time he he toured. Did yeah, you, have I you saw gone? it here in Chicago. Oh, oh yeah. It's oh, pretty it fucking I, great. I loved every yeah, it was second great. of it. It was a big night for me. Yeah. <laughs> we had good seats, too. And I was like, all right, we're fucking watching John Carpenter do his rock yeah, star thing. We were pretty great. right up there. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> um, so this movie is produced by Jennings Lang, which I talked about in one other episode when I discovered uh, that I was unaware until, until sometime last year that Jennings Lang, whose name I've been seeing in movies for 50 years, is not is an actual person that isn't two last names, which I always I thought. I was like, okay, was this wondering. is like Hanna Barbera or something, you know? It's right. these two guys, but no, especially it's when one it comes up in that, especially when it comes up in that Brady Bunch font. Yes, exactly, like, right? Yeah, who yeah. are these people? Yeah, no, it's Jennings. The guy's name is Jennings. That's okay, his first and name. what what's what's he? What else has he done? Oh well, tons of stuff. Hang on a second. Now you've asked a question. Okay, <laughs> as go. a as a producer. He produced, uh, among others, the the Beguiled. Oh yeah, uh, Play Misty for same me. Same year. Yeah. Did he do Dirty Harry too? Uh, no. Okay. Um, Slaughterhouse Five. Ooh. The Great Northfield Minnesota Raid, which is a Philip Kaufman movie, which I hadn't seen when we talked about Philip Kaufman, but then saw shortly afterwards. Just and saw kinda it. Loved. Yeah. Did you watch it? Yeah, I got to. No, I got to see it. Um, he produced. He did produce High Plains Drifter, another Eastwood movie. Okay. Charlie Varick, the the Charles uh, the Walter Matthau movie, and um, Joe Don Baker, directed by Don Siegel. So he was like Don Siegel's producer, I would say. Okay. Uh, Goddamn! Every Clint Eastwood movie back then had the greatest title. They're all just amazing titles, including Play Misty for me. It's just like how many bands can you get out of that guy's movie titles? All of them. Yeah. Now he also produced a, a movie from 73 that I've never seen that I really need to. It's a Clint Eastwood, another Clint yes. Eastwood director, Breezy. Breezy. I have never seen this, but I'm fascinated by it. I, cause I just found out about this movie yesterday. I would have thought that Clint Eastwood was not directing movies that he doesn't star in mm-hmm. until like bird. Yeah. Right. Me too. But as Far back as 73 with Breezy, he's making a movie that he's not in. Yeah, I, I'll, I, I'll find that for us. That's something for us to watch. Uh, Jennings Lang went on to do Airport 75, which was made in 74. Uh, An mm. Earthquake, one of my favorite disaster movies, maybe my favorite disaster movie. Oh, we got to do that one. Yeah, we should. Uh, the Front Page, uh, the Billy Wilder version uh-huh. of the Front Page with Lemon and Mathau. Right. Uh, Swashbuckler. Uh, which is a not so good uh, pirate movie, right? He did Airport seventy seven. He did Roller Coaster, a movie I mentioned already on this show. He did House Calls, which is another Walter Matthau, Glenda Jackson comedy, directed by Howard Zeef, who we talked about a couple episodes again. Oh, oh I've seen the name. What the hell did Howard Zeef direct? He something? just did something that we yeah. just watched. Yeah, yeah. I can't keep it straight, man. No, I can't either. He did Jennings Lang was the airport guy because then he did Concord Airport seventy nine. He did that the uh, the Don Adams when they finally decided to make a movie of um, Get Smart oh, the nude bomb the nude bomb yeah, yeah. and he did <laughs> uh, the Sting two which I don't think I've ever suffered through all the way 
but I'm not a fan of the sting. Oh, really? Yeah. Never. I, I, I got a, I've got a really good friend who's like, how have you never watched the sting? I just can't get very far. It just, oh, I, you've never I watched it. the sting. I've gotten about a half an hour in and then I just get bored, you know? Um, hmm. even when I was a kid, I'd probably like, all right, I'm going to go outside and play. Yeah. My grandparents took me to see it at Radio City Music Hall. So I fell in love with it right away. Yeah. But it was probably just the spectacle of it. I haven't, I, I, it's a movie I keep meaning to go back to, but yeah, I can see why. Like if I just watched it for the first time as an adult, I'd be like, oh, whatever. Yeah. It's a little like, it, you know, as, as, as big star and big thing it is it also has that sort of 70s tv feel to it kind of it's a period piece but it kind of feels like it's got that sort of tv lighting everything's really brightly lit and yeah i mean i was watching uh uh butch casting the sundance kid not too long ago because uh somebody was supposed to be in it oh sam elliott was supposed to be in it so i was watching it to see if i could find sam elliott and i had no luck Mm-hmm. But I mean, it, I thought it looked amazing. It didn't look like TV. I forget who shot it, but it was somebody who is yeah. well, like, that's a beautiful, film. somebody big. Yeah. yeah, it is beautiful. But I can also like, you know, the buddy comedies, I, I get it. But you know, it's also sometimes those movies, it feels like you're paying to watch somebody go on vacation and that kind of bugs me. Right. Uh, so anyway, Jenny, that's Jennings Lang. Jennings Lang in a nutshell. But then, um, and it's a Malpaso production. And I was like, you know what? I've been seeing Malpaso for 50 years now. Because you've been watching I looked Clint Eastwood movies. Yeah, right. And I'm like, what, what does it even mean? And so it turns out that it's derived from this Malpaso Creek, which was located south of Carmel-by-the-Sea, California. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Eastwood had received his U.S. Army basic training at nearby Fort Ord. But... More importantly than all that stuff, Malpaso is Spanish for bad step or misstep. And so Eastwood named his production company like Bad Step. And it and it was, um, uh, here, here's the thing in Wikipedia. His agent, in 1964, his agent told him it would be a bad step for his career to do the role of the man with no name and a fistful of dollars. Uh. And so uh, later on, when he wanted to take more creative control over his films and decided to form his own production company, he thought the choice of Malpaso was an appropriate choice because he had made this misstep, which turned into a goldmine for him. So. Guy's got a sense of humor about himself after all, huh? Yeah. How do you like them apples? Uh, Conrad Hall is the guy who shot Butch and Sundance. Ah, yes. Well, he's he's a, one of the greats. A giant. Yeah, yeah. he's a giant. Uh, so anyway, at the beginning of the film, we find Clint on this sort still of... in the opening credits. Yeah, we're still there. This is what happens the when we go step by step. Started, yeah, they, oh, the no, they, they've started. We're still in the opening credits. No. Yeah, they started. But, but we see Clint <laughs> on this balcony overlooking this uh, steep drop and seemingly pondering his fate and wondering maybe should I make this movie? I don't I don't know what he's doing. He's hanging out uh-huh. there. And when I started typing up these notes this morning, it opened up a real can of worms for me because I was like, wait a minute. Because I, I had written this note about this portrait of Clint that we see in the window of his house. Uh, and it's an interesting thing that you're like, come across this like Dave Garver portrait, like a painting. And, this, mm-hmm. and I... 
And I thought it was an interesting note for his character that this guy is the kind of guy who would have this painting of himself and that somebody's made this painting from. I think it tries it starts to tell you the story of, you know, his vanity and his sort of right. like self obsessive nature. And it also becomes a plot point later. But when I wrote those words, right. I started thinking, you know what? I'm actually confused about whose house we're in from time to time in this movie. And I started wondering, because at a certain point, it seems like that portrait of Clint is actually in his girlfriend Toby's house and that she's the one who yes. painted it because she's an artist. Right. And so then I thought to myself, wait a minute. At the beginning of this movie, is Clint Eastwood actually hanging outside of Toby's house and he's yes. looking in Toby's window and seeing that? Yes. Yes. That's wow. Toby's house. That's Toby's house. Right. Because the whole climax takes place in Toby's house, not in Clint's right. house. Toby's so the one the with movie, that view. Right. The movie begins where it ends, and and that's the shot where, you know, I, so the movie zooms into that, and then after the end, when uh, Jessica Walter falls to her death, the movie zooms out from there. Yep. And one of his great helicopter shots. Yeah. But my, my thing was, the last time I, the first time of the last time I watched this, I was like, oh, oh wait, is this a, a flash forward? Uh, but it, it's not. But, but that is Toby's house. But did you always know that, that the movie starts with him sort of loitering outside of Toby's house? Because if you follow the plot of this movie, he thinks that Toby is in Sausalito, that she's moved. And that he's, so he's hanging outside of her empty house. Stalking her. Stalking her or like longing for her or something. And I I like that. I like that a lot because I do think that this movie, uh, uh, in a subtle way, like sort of, you know, shows him to be every much the stalker, every bit of the stalker that Evelyn is. Only he's stalking Toby. Um, Yeah. And uh, so I was like, oh, you know, I, but but it's something that I that never occurred to me before. I really, even when I watched the movie yesterday, I was like, okay, he's outside his house. He's this is what he, this is his morning ritual, and then he gets in his car and drives to work. Uh, but it, yeah. but it's not the morning. That's the other confusing thing because it really feels like this is the morning, but it actually is sunset because he's the mm. night shift DJ. He's about so to he's, go to work. Yeah, he's stalking the outside of Toby's house. Then he hops in his convertible. Then he drives to work, and it gets dark out, and it's time for him to go to work. Right. Yeah, you know, I mean, the, the thing about the, there's a lot talked about this movie, where it's like how smart Eastwood was to choose a straight-ahead thriller as his first uh, directing effort. But I think this movie is just as personal to him as any other movie he's made, just as personal as uh, White Hunter, Blackheart, or Unforgiven. I mean, you know, by all accounts he was quite a womanizer mm-hmm. and 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 i think that all this stuff in the movie plus the stuff about going to the even though it stops the movie cold the stuff about him going to the monterey jazz festival that's all stuff that is like he's really interested in and it's it's very close to his heart and so like there's a lot of things in this movie where he's kind of wrestling with his own attitudes towards women and the things that he's done yeah, it's it's just as personal as anything he's ever done. Yeah, but it feels like it's a slick commercial thriller because it is. But there's also layers under there. I mean, I think it's a really complex movie. And like even that opening shot, it's like he's in a picture of him is inside this house that he can't get to. You know, and it, the the eyes of the the way she sees him is better than who he is because later on she'll be like, oh, his eyes are colder. You know, and Toby sees him 
in, in a warmer light. So there's this thing that he can't get to because she's gone. I mean, there's a lot going on in that opening shot. Yeah. Yeah. But subtle enough that like as many times yep. I've seen this movie, it never occurred to me until today that, oh, no, that he's not outside his house. He's outside well, of her house. And this the climate. biggest sin that a, a Don Siegel acolyte uh, could commit would be to hit you over the head with that shit. You right. Know, you know, and not entertain you. You can't do that. Right. Right, 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 right. Yes. But I, you know, last episode I was ranting about like, you know, uh, internal geography in a movie and how important it is for you to know where the characters are in relation to each other and blah, 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 blah. But this movie proves me wrong because I've been watching it and loving it for 40 years and never realizing that, oh, no, the house, I thought this was all happening at Clint's house, but no, Clint's house is the one that's all torn up and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And this is all, this whole climax is at fucking Toby's house. Oh, okay. Oh. In the mo- oh wait, he's at Toby's house in the beginning of this movie too. Oh, why is that? Oh, oh yeah, there's all this great stuff that it yeah, totally yeah. went over my head every single time. <laughs> so another thing that just occurred to me is that you know, as you say, he had this reputation to be a womanizer. But interestingly, even in a post Play Misty for Me world where he, you, you, you'd think Play Misty for Me is his sort of like saying goodbye to those things and being like, I've learned my lesson. Uh, I've told this story on film, but, Mm-mm. but honestly, like I, you know, the, my not having delved very deeply into this, my sense is that he, uh, for the last 30 years has painted Sandra Locke to be like the equivalent of the Evelyn character in this movie. Like that she's some crazy actress that he got involved with and then he couldn't shake loose after, after their relationship had, uh, had died. Um, right. Yeah, no, he didn't. He didn't change his ways. He didn't and there was, there was tons, <laughs> tons of affairs, uh, tons of illegitimate children. I mean, you know, it's, it's uh, he, uh, he, 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 he swung, baby. Yeah. So Clint hops into his convertible. Uh, he's the overnight DJ at KRML, which maybe are the best radio station call letters ever. The best. The fucking best. And he's listening to kind of this rocking kind of soul tune on his radio, which is interesting because even by the middle point of this movie, we are learning that Clint is really much more of a total jazz cat. And, and this right. film's soul is kind of like jazz music based. But it does have these other genres sort of around the periphery, including that first number. I love the casting of Don Siegel in this movie. And I love that in the credits, he's listed as Donald Siegel. Donald's going to sort of like confuse people as to... This is the second movie we've done that has a, a Don Siegel cameo in it. Oh, yeah. He's in um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, 78. Right. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, I'll tell you that my biggest takeaway and the thing that I would think of every time I thought of this movie for the first 20 years of, of watching it is the game that they play. Uh, yeah. Cry Bastion. <laughs> right. Which... Yeah. Uh, I was endlessly, it was one of those things where every time I saw it, I was delighted by it. Um, (laughs) but always sort of, but probably took me like five times. And again, I was a kid and I was whatever, but it was the kind of movie where every time I'd see it, I'd be be like, Oh, what are the, what is this cool game they're playing? And then like, be like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a fake game. And they're not, you're taken in. I'm taken in every time I'm taken in by that cry bastion. I also, this was the first time I'd watched it in maybe five years. Um, and I also was surprised that it's really just that one scene. I, I, in my memory, they sort of they come back and do that a couple of times. Like that isn't just one mm-hmm. game of Cry Bastion, but it like 
they introduce it and then it happens again later, which is totally not true. It's one and no. done for Cry Bastion. They've got a lot of, not a lot, but their scenes together are great. Yeah. And, you know, it, 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 you can, you can uh, really get a glimpse of their relationship from those scenes, which, which mm-hmm. I, I, I love. I really think it's great. Yes. And I discovered that there was a band called Cry Bastion, which obviously must have been come from. Of course. Um, and. Uh, it's a fool. It's a fool's ploy, my man. Yeah. Was I going to say that? something else about Cry Passion? Yeah. I don't the know. game. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, here's the, here's the thing that's interesting. To At re- the Sardine Factory, which is probably the greatest name for a restaurant. Which is a real restaurant and, according to Wikipedia, is still open for business in exactly the same location it's always been in. Uh, we should go to the Sardine Factory. I'm going sometime. to the Sardine Factory. So, wait. That's a question I have, actually. Is the bar part of the Sardine Factory? What do you mean? Like, is the Don C is where he's hanging out with Don Siegel? Is that the Sardine Factory? Yes. But is that also the same place that he has r- lunch with uh, Madge from no. San Francisco? It is not. Oh, it is okay. Not. And, and I checked it last night to make sure it's not. Oh, okay. I thought it was, uh, but unless I'm absolutely wrong, it's not because I I, I don't. The, the steps, may, maybe the restaurant of the Sardine Factory is around the back. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's like Seaside. Next to, next, yeah, maybe it is. I, I thought it was, but I couldn't find any proof that it, that it was. Well, there's, It'd be better if it was. When he's running up those steps or, and going back down the steps after she interrupts him at lunch, there's right. definitely opportunity. There's definitely like the name of the restaurant is somewhere on there. There's, there's something. And I'll, I'll go back. I couldn't see anything that said oh. Sardine Factory. Mm. Okay. Well, I'll skip over to the director of photography, Bruce Surtees, whose list of credits is a little bit mind-blowing. Do you want to hear some of his highlights? Sure. He, apparently, he's known for being Clint Eastwood's cinematographer, but if you look at this list of movies, uh, it's more than that. Okay, in the in the 70s, he... And, and this is one of the first movies that he shot. He didn't shoot anything prior to 71. So in 71, he shot The Beguiled... Blue Miss, mm-hmm. Play Misty for Me, and Dirty Harry. So, like, that's, you know, there you go. That's amazing that these three movies came out the same year. Yeah. Uh, it blows my mind. Then he also was the cinematographer for the Great Northfield Minnesota Raid, which is of a great-looking Western. Then he was the cinematographer for the movie that we did on our very first episode of um, 70 Movies on the 70, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. Which is a great looking film. That's the one that they shot in like Studio City or Century City or whatever it's called, where, you know, it's like a, it's really like a apartment complex and shopping plaza, but it looks very futuristic. Right. Um, He, then he did. It was done on the cheap too. Done on the cheap uh, by um, Jay Lee Thompson, who had had made a ton of movies. Long, long career. Yeah. But then Bruce shot Joe Kidd, High Plains Drifter. Bloom and Love, The Outfit, Lenny, Night Moves with Gene Hackman, nice. uh, Sparkle, Lead Belly, The Outlaw Josie Wales, The Shootist, Three Warriors, Big Wednesday, Movie Movie, Escape from Alcatraz, Dreamer, Firefox, White Dog. <laughs> you ever see that? That Sam Fuller movie about the dog is trained to attack black people? Yes. I've, I've seen both White Dog and Firefox. 
Yeah, I have to. Uh, Bruce uh, Surtees shot, ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stains of all movies. Nice. Honky Tonk Man. Bad Boys. Great. Yeah. Risky Business. He shot Risky Business. Yeah, which is one of the most gorgeous movies, right? Uh, Such a great, great fucking movie. Yeah. Sudden Impact. Tightrope. Beverly Hills Cop. Mm. Pale Rider. Psycho 3. Rat Boy. Back to the Beach. License to Drive. Pale Rider. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Men Don't Leave. Uh, Pale Rider. (laughs) Run, Chains of Gold, The Super, That Night, The Crush. So He Shot Men Don't Leave is another great movie. It's a a fucking shame that Paul Brickman only made two movies. It's really one of the the great losses to cinema. Didn't he, did he, what was the one about the arms dealers? He he only wrote that one? Paul Brickman, I think, wrote something else that maybe didn't direct it that was terrible. Arms dealer. No, I, I don't know what that is. Maybe he just wrote it. Yeah, hang like on. He had a really bad experience, and, and he got kind of drummed out of the business. Uh, Deal of the Century. That's the one Ooh. he wrote. Directed by William Friedkin. <laughs> oh. Chevy Billy. Chase, Gregory He's... Hines, and Sigourney Weaver. And that, was af- that wasn't after... It was uh, the same Lee, year as Risky it? Business, but it came out after Risky Business. Because I remember okay. them like sort of hyping it. It's like, oh, here's this other Paul Brickman thing. Like, oh, yeah, no, no it was not. Did you know that he wrote Bad News Bears in Breaking Training? Paul Brickman? Yeah. I didn't. It doesn't surprise me. <laughs> that movie has a scene that made me laugh so hard as a kid. They go to like the Astrodome or something where they're supposed to do this kind of like exhibition three inning game before like an actual major league game. And they start playing and they kind of run out of time, but the Bears are pissed off because they want to continue or finish their fucking exhibition game. Uh-huh. And Tanner <laughs> or somebody steals one of the bases and is running into the outfield with it. And all these uh, umpires are like chasing him. And it just made me laugh and laugh. There you go. Maybe that was Paul Brickman. Gotta love, gotta love Tanner. Yeah. Yeah. Gotta love Tanner. So he's shot some classics. Bruce Ortiz, unbelievable. I could go on and on. But uh, it's incredible. This is a nice looking film, too. So we're still at the Sardine Factory. I know. But this Carmel by the Sea, didn't Clint become the mayor of this town, Carmel or uh, city, whatever yeah. it is? Yeah. I was reading an interview with uh, uh, Roger Ebert from like when the enforcer was about to come out and he just, he went to meet him at for brunch in Carmel and just half of the interview is him talking about how great the place is. So it's probably yeah. already campaigning back then. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting that these, these Hollywood players still kind of treated the movies that they were making, like these sort of like hobby projects where they were getting their friends and family to be in these movies that they would shoot in their neighborhoods. Um, that Son of Blob movie that Larry Hagman made is kind of like the same thing. It's like he shot it at his neighbor's houses and he like everyone in the cast was somebody who lived near Larry Hagman and he would just yeah. like put him in the movie for a scene or two. Uh, yeah. Did you get a chance to watch that before it uh, left? Uh, no, oh, I didn't. I, I tried. That one's, that one's easy to find. That one's like on YouTube for free and uh, a really nice Yeah, print. there's a few movies that I thought were like uh, just you could only find on yeah. Criterion and then, you know, you go to a bar and somebody, Oh, you got Criterion. It's like, no, this is on Netflix. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
This is YouTube. We were playing at the bar. Yeah. Um, so I love this thing. So, so Dave Garver is this ladies man and I love, he shows up at work and has this rapport with this guy, Al Monte played by James mm-hmm. McEachin, who, uh, has a very interesting career as an actor and then as an author of, of both nonfiction and fiction. Uh, but he, sh- he shows up in a couple more Eastwood movies over the years. He's, uh, I love that guy. I wish he was in yeah. more stuff. Um, yeah. But when, when his character, Al, describes Eastwood as like this, you know, sort of ladies' man, uh, right. Eastwood gives him this kind of mock skeptical look that's, that like sort of says, like, I know exactly what you're talking about, but I'm going to pretend that you, that I don't know what you're talking about. Right. Um, it's like, it's like, yeah, we, right. Yeah. And it's a nice bit of acting from Eastwood. Like the, the, I feel like this movie already puts the lie to the idea that Eastwood didn't know how to act and was just not a very deep or subtle actor. Like I think he does lots of like great nonverbal things, and I also think he does a lot of great verbal things. First of all, I think Eastwood has a great kind of radio voice for this character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he also does a really nice job acting like he knows how to cue up a record. Like he. He slaps that vinyl on there and he's got the needle. He's not like nervous about it. He's not being, he, he's, he, he looks like somebody who's done it a thousand times. Right. And he clearly went to the same DJ school as Adrian Barbeau's DJ in the fog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, in that interview with, with Ebert, he's, he's talking about like the skepticism uh, that people had when he approached play Misty for me. And he's like, you know, I've never been a cowboy. I've never been a cop. But what's the problem? Like, I could be a DJ. That's something that I could have done. You know, the guy's the same age as me. He lives from the same place that I'm from. It's like, it, I didn't, you know, I, didn't, I don't even have to act when I'm doing something like this. Right. Oh, so here's what I wanted to say about Cry Bastion. What, I've, what, I, what, have, what occurred to me this time, because again, this is like the first time. This is the Cry Bastion bit that you were trying to remember yes. from a half an yeah, hour yeah, ago? Yeah, but it's good okay, because good. It, cause I be realized good. I was three paragraphs ahead of where I thought we were right now. And it's like, oh, this uh-huh. is great. We're, uh, we are making progress because we're only an hour into this podcast. Uh, this movie is an hour and 46 minutes or something. So we yeah, have we, a good we, 40 minutes left. We don't have as much time as we think we do. Though. No, we don't. But nobody does, you know. Especially okay. these days, <laughs> right? And uh, uh, but uh, here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is me. This is, I, I I realize for as many movies as I've watched over the years, and as much time I've devoted to film, I mostly just watch shit to just to be entertained and not to really mm-hmm. think about it, not to try to really examine it in any in any kind of serious way. But it, I was happy to realize that not only it's not only is the cry bastion game really cool and a wonderful thing and something I've always wanted to like do in real life. Um, ever since I saw them do it. But what I love about that scene that I finally realized watching it this week is that yes, they're running this fucking scam that they run all the time where they're really just trying to pick up women at this bar. And, and it's just a way to get somebody interested in coming over and asking them what they're doing. But the right. thing is, Evelyn is already running a scam on them. Right. So she's she's yeah. two steps ahead of the scam they're trying to run on her. Like, she's already working to pick him up. So they didn't need to do right. fucking anything. They just made no. her job easier for her. <laughs> yeah. she's the per- He's the person she's been waiting for. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. But I never put those two things together and be like, well, yeah, they're cry-bashing her, but really she's cry-bashing them. <laughs> right. Exactly. 
Exactly. So she picks him up, really, and um, lets him think right. that now. Then he's da- picking her up. Yes, and so he takes her home. And then you're gonna have to help me here. Do they go back to her house or his house? Because this is where I get. It's to her place. It's her place. They go to her place. It's her place. Yeah. And you can she- tell it's you can tell it's always somebody else's place because uh, the walls are painted. Mm, the right. painting job is done. Right. Right. When it's right. not his house. So she reveals to him eventually that she. Uh, was running a scam or that she was at the bar waiting for him. And not only that, she is the woman who has been calling him all these years requesting Misty. Right. She is the play Misty for me caller. Right. And I want to say they've already established in, in the scene where he shows up for work. I want to say that I frequently have to remind myself that Misty is the name of the song and play Misty for me is the name of the movie, but not the song. Like I always think like the song is play Misty for me. <laughs> right. No, but no, it took me years. Yeah. It took me years to, to, to make that connection. Yeah. That's how iconic this movie and its title are. Well, plus, you know, the, the title doesn't help because it, it's not play Misty for me with Misty in quotes. Right. You know, it, they do away with the quote. So it's a little confusing. Right. Right. And in, and you can almost interpret it as a double meaning where it's like, you know, it's 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 sort mm. of Clint Eastwood saying, act, right, act in a certain way, play misty, play play watery eyed, or you know, be right. be vulnerable for me, right, yeah, which he, he sort of wants her to be, but she's uh, she's every bit the shark that he is, if not worse, yeah. <laughs> well, worse, right. I guess. <laughs> Um, debatable. That's yeah, debatable. Right, right. So, so, she, so she, they go back to her house. She reveals her secrets to him, uh, and then there's a really nice transition. Speaking of Eastwood, with his first movie, I think making maybe more of an effort to think in terms of what are some cool things I can do with with editing and stuff. Yeah. And so there are a couple of really nice transitions, and this is maybe my favorite one. It goes quickly from them kissing while standing by the fireplace. And then that that cuts to them in bed naked, and then that cuts quickly to the them waking up the next morning. And so we get the the story of their night in three really quick shots that go from one to the other to the other, and they they flow really nicely. And you suddenly realize, oh, we've just spent twelve hours with these characters in the course of fifteen seconds, and we know the right. whole story. We know they had sex. We know they woke up, and blah blah blah. Beautifully done, economical. Right. And then he, you get the hint that something bad is happening when you see her watch him go. Like she's, he, he's not, he hasn't left her in bed. She's aware of his every movement at every time. Yeah. Uh, she's not passive for one second. Right, right. So Dave goes home and Al Monte shows up, uh, raps with him. Here's that. Uh, yes. Here's that. Uh, that Davis spent the night with this. Uh, I'm gonna. I would love when he says, "I'm gonna have to ask you to ease on out of here." <laughs> yeah. Yes. So Evelyn shows up with groceries, unwanted, unannounced, and um, and Dave is more than a little rough with her. He kind of grabs her yeah. arm, and you know, it's a little like uh, abusey that's going on. Right. And when he says, here's how it should go. Yeah. There's a thing called a phone. Yeah. I pick it up. I say, Hey, how are you doing? You know, it's like, Oh, is that the way it works? Right. And by the way, aren't you the guy who visits your ex-girlfriend's house every day to, to see if she's back in town <laughs> or to stare at this picture of yourself? Right. Right. Uh, <laughs> but I think that that's, as I was saying before, I think that, that, that these Eastwood movies age and really 
good and interesting ways. Like he seems to anticipate these deeper and like alternate readings of the texts. So that, like I said, is law and order movies can also be seen and read now as anti-authoritarian. And then you squint a little here and you sort of see Dave Garver as the kind of asshole uh, with women that he's now upset about her treating him. And, and you kind of feel like, well, he kind of is getting what's coming to him. Right. Uh, but then we get the first real, maybe real indication of her psychosis where the neighbor is yes. complaining about the car idling and she suddenly freaks out and she's like, how'd you like to go screw yourself? Right. <laughs> and yeah. I love how, ner- I love how shocked Dave Garber is every time this happens. He's like, <laughs> he's like oh man, <laughs> what have I got on my hands here? Yeah. Uh, so then we follow Dave into town and he sees a girl in a sweater that he thinks he recognizes. And again, stalkery Dave Garver jumps out of the car, like basically like leaves his car idling at some, I don't know, like a red light or something and starts right. chasing this, this woman through town. He finally catches up with her and he discovers it's not who he thought it was, which is this woman, Toby, uh, who he had been seeing, but has apparently moved out of town. But unbelievably, it's her roommate. Yes, it's her roommate who's wearing the borrowed sweater. So that's why he knew it. Must be the only sweater in that style made, right? It's a one of a kind. It's a one of a kind sweater. That's what I meant to say. Thank you. But it's impressive that that Dave even is concede past himself long enough to notice other people's outfits. That's sort of a, oh, he's know. he's got an eye for the ladies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But does he have an eye for their clothes? Apparently. Oh, apparently. Right. I mean his his wardrobe in this is pretty fucking awesome. Yeah. Even though I, you know, it's not it's n- nothing that you would uh, really associate Clint Eastwood wearing. You know, Clint Eastwood was never the hepcat that Dave Garver is. But, uh, you know, some of those pants. He's got an amazing pair of pants incredible. in this movie. Yeah. So he finds out from Toby's new roommate that Toby is in, indeed back in town. He goes back to her house to kind of angrily confront her about being back in town without letting him know. And then we get to meet her <laughs> friend or landlord or something jj who's like the token gay friend in the 70s gay movies friend who, the movie's not only misogynist it's homophobic yeah he's got the unfortunate line about uh please don't mention seafood and it's like oh, oh yeah Here after go. cruising some s- sailors yeah. yeah yeah i'm sure it played fine in sure. uh, zion illinois when it came out no and you know even now it's like well this isn't as bad as it could have been and maybe it isn't as bad as you would expect it to be I mean, it's not quite Mickey Rooney doing a Japanese guy right. in, uh, in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Right. You know, at least this guy doesn't get killed. He's sort of in and out. It's just sort of like, hey, sure. there's a gay guy in this universe. Goodbye. Sure. Hi and goodbye. <laughs> like, right. He gets there's off, a he, lot of. Yeah. He gets yeah. off with the one seafood joke. He doesn't have to. He's not demeaned any further. <laughs> right. You know, and, and the thing about it is all the, the minor characters, they all have good scenes. Yeah. You know, they, they, they're all allowed to. Be funny and you absolutely, know, and let's name them Eastwood out. Eastwood has to JJ, who's the least of them, but Al Monte, who has got a, a bunch mm-hmm. of great scenes. Birdie, the housekeeper, who's right, fun and sassy, but also stereotypically, you know, so for like a black housemaid right. or whatever. And then the um, Sergeant McCallum, the uh, the cop, who's got a right. bunch of funny scenes uh, before he meets an untimely end. Um, but he's got that whole thing with Montavani and uh, teasing right. him about not liking his show and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. They all get their time in the sun, and Eastwood does his, uh, you know, right. reacting against all of them, which is 
you know, he right. never stopped doing that. Now, I'm sure this isn't the first instance of it, but again, the relationship between our protagonist, Dave, and this cop, Sergeant McCallum, sort of seems to pave the way for a million more of those uh, relationships and thrillers throughout the rest of the 70s and 80s. This is like the prototype for every De Palma cop in a, in a movie. You know, every uh-huh. Dennis Franz character is like sort of like a variation on this Sergeant McCallum, this sort of like... Um, antagonistic and friendly relationship that they have with the right. person who's in the middle of this murder mystery. Right. But it's also uh, typically like an Eastwood concern at this time that, you know, that, that law enforcement is useless, mm-hmm. which is something that they would talk about in the Dirty Harry movies. Right. And, you know, this idea like oh, we had to let her go and say, well, you know, what, what the hell did you do that for? And why didn't you tell me? It's right. Well, that that's, is, that's and a, it is a good a question. Typically, Eastwood concern. <laughs> yeah, it is like, why did they let her go? Uh, right. But, um, uh, but, but again, I, I appreciate that 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 isn't. They don't spend a lot of time on that. It's sort of in this case, it feels like it's more just a convenient plot point rather than the point of the movie. Whereas in D- Dirty Harry, you're feeling like you know half this movie right. is really about the fact that he's constricted by these inappropriate bureaucratic laws uh-huh. that are that are stopping him from taking care of business and this it's just kind of like well right. we need to get her back out on the street somehow well let's just say she went to a mental hospital and they fixed her up and therapy worked you know it doesn't seem like it's a it doesn't seem like it's something he's particularly concerned about except to move the plot along sure but i but i also think it kind of it fits in and it dovetails in. with definitely what he in. yeah how he feels about law enforcement Right. So then uh, after we meet J.J. the token gay, uh, Dave and Toby take a walk and have a long conversation. And I just I'm pointing this out only because this is another instance, Mm -hmm. much like the thing we saw where Dave and uh, Evelyn kiss and then go to bed and then wake up. Um, Dave and Toby have a long conversation about what they've been up to, why she left, why she's back. He wants to be back with her. But Eastwood does a really nice thing where you feel like you're hearing their entire conversation, but the conversation right. keeps jump, jump cutting from one location to another so that you feel like I'm hearing all the important parts of this conversation, but these people are spending a lot longer together than we're actually seeing on screen. But we we both get the sensation that we've heard it all, but that we're also, we understand that they've maybe been talking for like an hour and it's taking up three minutes of screen time. And I think right. he does a really nice job of the editing and the, and the moving from location to location while, while the conversation seems to flow smoothly through all those jump cuts. Right. There's the question where Toby goes, how's the redhead? And then there's a, a cut. And then he says, Oh, she went back mm-hmm. to, to, to Berkeley. Right. And you realize that the redhead did not go back to Berkeley. They're talking about a different woman. Right. And it's, it, it seems jarring, you know, and then you go, oh, no, that's actually pretty fucking clever. Yeah. Right. So Dave goes at some point. Uh, oh, here. I'm sorry. Uh, I skipped ahead too far. Uh, and at some point in that conversation, Toby says, I was make I, I felt like I was becoming the thing I hate most in the world, which is a jealous female, which is why mm. she left. And so you learn more about what a. Uh, even more about what uh, you know that that Dave hasn't been so great to to his his no. actual girlfriends. He's no, it, yeah, and I I, I don't think uh, her having roommates 
is is on the same level of of him fucking around on no, her. No, absolutely know, it's, right. It's like a false equivalency. Right. But I but I also like that she says I was afraid of becoming the thing I hate most in the world, jealous female and you know, she's describing this character that she doesn't know anything about yet but is about to be a major issue in her life, right. Evelyn. Right, right. And then she calls who does she call women gropies or groupies and she's like She does. Yeah. It's very funny. They're groupies. Yeah. You mean groupies. Yeah. Uh, so then Dave, not, as he's... Not the movie's best joke. No, but not a bad one. But Dave, as he likes to do, goes back to uh, Don Siegel's bar in the middle of the day. Evelyn mm. is stalking him, calls him from outside the bar in a phone booth. Um, <laughs> he tells Don Siegel to tell her that he's not there, but she knows right. he's there. When he goes back, when he leaves the bar a couple minutes later, I was always, I'm always thinking like, oh, you know what? He can get away with this because maybe he went to the bathroom and then left and Don Siegel thought he'd already left. It's not like he's there a lot longer after Don Siegel says he's left, but she's not, you know, she doesn't buy anything. She she didn't buy it. (laughs) She's like, isn't that funny? (laughs) Yeah. So she's waiting for him in the car. And when he says he's got to go to a business lunch, she steals his keys, which is another real red flag. Uh, for me, I, I, um, I'm like, whoa. Well, you you missed the other other one, which is uh, like, which is a big meme. Is is when uh, she's like, yeah, get lost, asshole. Like you know, where they're like, are, are you okay? And he's Clint tells him to get lost, and then she ups it. You know, like, yeah, get lost, asshole. And he's like, whoa. And they say, oh no, this guy's in trouble already. He's got his hands full. Let's just let's just leave this one alone. Yeah. Yeah, but I, but I, I kind of feel in a way we're supposed to think that Dave is sees a kind of a kindred spirit that he sort of keeps softening on her again because he's recognizing that he does the same fucking things in some uh-huh. ways with Toby. I don't game know. Game is recognizing game. Yeah, he's rec- game recognizing game. Uh, so Dave then goes to work on on the uh, his air check tape for this San Francisco gig. He goes to the studio. And Al Monte is there, as Al Monte always is there. But he rolls mm-hmm. a joint and then has a conversation with Dave where Dave tells him he's trying to uncomplicate his life and that Toby is back. So so why um, do you think and I really why enjoy do you think Al Monte is really Why do you think he's smoking the joint in the other room off of camera? Do you think that's because Clint Eastwood do- doesn't approve of marijuana and maybe the original draft was that he was smoking in front of him, and then he changed it and said, you know, get mm-hmm. in the other room. I don't even want to see it on screen. Yeah, great minds think alike. This was the paragraph I wrote. I was like, I very much oh, enjoy yeah. that Dave chases Al out of the room because he doesn't want it to reek of pot, but I also wonder what outside factors may have influenced that choice. Were they wanting to avoid an on-screen dis- depiction of pot smoking? Were they wanting to leave their options open for Al's dialogue? That's the other, that's like sort of the non-controversial thing I was thinking. Like maybe they don't want to see Al because they weren't sure what they wanted that conversation to be when they were shooting it and wanted to leave uh, the possibility for like re-recording Al's dialogue. But I I do think that it that it seems like there's although I I like it I like the idea it's a, it's an interesting staging of the scene that yeah. Al's off screen, but. Uh, it also feels like it's they're making some kind of an accommodation for the pot smoking, which they. But again, if it's yeah. rated R, I don't know why they care. But whatever. I well, I, it, it's like uh, it's like that pot smoking scene in Eyes Wide Shut. You ever noticed that 
you never actually see um, Tom Cruise take a toke mm. on screen, and you and you see Nicole Kidman smoking on it. But like every time it goes back to uh, Tom Cruise, it's after he's taken a hit. And um, you think that was his Scientologist speaking? Yeah. Well, I think those Scientologists killed Stanley Kubrick too. So, but if you really want to get into it. <laughs> I do want to get into it. We got to get, we yeah. got to do a Kubrick movie and get into that okay. in a big way. I have, I have many theories. Uh, so after that interesting scene with the non pot smoking, Dave goes to Evelyn's house to have a talk. Like he's going to sort of like say, I think he's going to say like, listen, we need to stop yeah. with this nonsense. But she's busy talking about hot pastrami and then she freaks out and he leaves <laughs> and then she calls him up. And he hangs up on her. Then she comes to his house, I think. If I'm I, 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 I got to say, I love the way uh, Eastwood says, God damn it. God damn it. There's not a goddamn thing between us. You know, I mean, it's, it's right up there with Nick Nolte's goddamn readings. I love an actor who can say goddamn. Yeah. And he's good at it. He really is. Oh, God damn it. He's good at it. So Evelyn goes to Dave's house and freaks out again, and he offers to drive her home when she calms down, and she agrees, but she says she wants to wash her face first. She goes to the bathroom, doesn't come back out, and when he goes to check on her, he discovers that she has slashed her wrists in a very splashy, <laughs> bloody way. Um, that big, that big bright red Romero blood. Yes, yes, that's the 1971 paint that I love so much. Yeah. Then uh, the doctor comes, sutures her wounds, and I guess the doctor is like a neighbor friend of his because it's all he keeps saying. I kind of need to report this, and Eastwood is like, "Please don't," and I'll take care right. of it. Uh, but he does tell Dave that it looked a lot worse than it was, so we get this insinuation that this wasn't a real suicide attempt, but this was Evelyn's, you know, way of keeping herself in the house and and, and getting Dave to to tolerate her. For a right, while. and the doctor also thinks she's zonked out, and she is not. <laughs> no, she's out. hearing every word. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She is a little like Michael Myers in that way, in that she's kind of unstoppable. Like the tranquilizers won't work on her. No, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, she's impervious so, to the trank. Right. Meanwhile, Toby calls while she's in bed and lets Dave know that her latest roommate is gone and the hell with Sausalito and they can skip this party they were going to go to tonight and just spend the night at her house. And Everything is going Dave's way, finally. Right. He's all about that. But of course, Evelyn's been eavesdropping on the call and insists on being held by Dave, who winds up stuck in bed with Evelyn all night, unable to call Toby. And Great his, shot. His glare, right, which they stay on, is murderous. And you almost get the sense that this movie is suggesting that this next act might be about Dave get, like, Columbo style, like getting rid of of Evelyn. And that would have been interesting. Yeah, that would have been another way to go with this movie. But th- that shot of him, like when, when the camera pulls back yeah. uh, and he's just, and it's the, the sun's gone down. That is Clint Eastwood at his most Wolverine-y. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like. I think Frank Miller and Chris Claremont drew Wolverine to look like that shot in this movie. Yeah, yeah. And then what's his name spent his uh, his Wolverine career. Uh, Hugh Jackman just trying Huge to Jackman. trying to do that until the last Wolverine movie where I kept watching that movie. Everyone loves that movie. I'm like, yeah, I okay. love that movie. Logan. 
I think it's fine, but the whole entire time I kept thinking, damn it, they really should have gotten Mel Gibson to play Wolverine in this movie because all Hugh Jackman is doing is like a late period Mel Gibson like like thing. Like I really thought like he's not old enough and he's not like ragged enough and he hasn't been around the bend enough to play uh, Logan at this point in his life. Well, but, Wolverine never really ages. Oh, okay. so that's okay. That's, that's part of problem. this thing. But he does in that movie, doesn't he? Because he loses his powers and ends up dying, he, right? He, he, well, he's been around for a while and he outlives everybody. But part of his part of the the side effect of of uh, of the experiments that have been um, by the Canadian government is is that it slows down his aging process. So he outlives all the other X Men. Oh, okay. Thank At you. least from what I remember. No, that's good. It's not like I'm a fan or anything. I, I'm not trying to say that. <laughs> Well, uh, were you were you a comic books guy, kid? Uh, yeah, yeah. I went through like a couple of years where I collected just about everything, but X Men were, were my thing. Um, yeah, it didn't last long, but but there was a period of the X Men where it was great, and Frank Miller and Chris Claremont. And let's change the subject. Okay, but I will say the Chad Polari of All About Chad was a huge comic book and especially X-Men fan as well. They were good stuff. The good stuff. And, uh, and I, I, I like the, uh, Brian Singer X-Men movies. Uh, I like all the X-Men movies actually, cause there's something very, um, soap opera, opery about them. Uh, yeah, those are, those and, are my boss's favorite comic book movies too, is the X-Men movies. And I just, they're the Cadillac of comic book movies. I'm not into it. Don't like it. Give me uh guardians of the galaxy. That's what I like. Well, that, those are very good movies, but you've got to be a special breed to appreciate the soap opera aspects of X-Men. Yeah. And they're there. All right. So, where are we? Uh, uh, oh, he's, he's he, murderous glances, and then he wakes right. up in the morning. He hasn't been able to tell her anything, and she's gone. Um, meanwhile, Madge Brenner calls. Uh, she wants to have a... Um, a meet a lunch meeting with him to discuss this future San Francisco radio show. And she, I love that she's oh, he, poolside for that conversation too. Yeah. Oh, he wants to talk to her. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, I want to talk yeah, to her. Her I want to talk to. Right. Yeah. Uh, Evelyn leaves a note saying she's borrowed Dave's car. Cut to another mm-hmm. great transition. She's, she reads that she's borrowed his car. Cut to her getting duplicate keys made. And that's another beautiful like, oh yeah, it's great. That, nice storytelling there. That's when the audience knows. They're like, oh, <laughs> shit. Oh, shit. He's yeah. in trouble. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then she confronts him at his business lunch, with Matt, which she doesn't believe is a business lunch. Uh, it's, it still gets me. It's still that's the so worst. uncomfortable for me. That, and that's the part I'm like, oh, he's not going to get that job. Yeah, I, I was debating whether I should tell this story uh, on the podcast, but there was a time shortly after college where this professor of mine had um, given my name to the Sundance Institute people um, for possible, like he thought like I would be uh, a good candidate to go to their workshop, which they would have like every year for like a week where they would work, work on your screenplays with you and maybe do like screen tests and maybe shoot some like, you know, screen test versions of, of scenes from a screenplay you were writing. So he recommended my me to to the Sundance people, and this was this was 
89 or 90. This was before the Sundance Film Festival. I think the Sundance Institute was really just getting started. So uh, my uh, Katie, my wife, then my girlfriend at the time who had met in college, had moved back to my parents' house in Brooklyn. We were living in my childhood bedroom uh, for about a year before we got our own apartment because that's what you did in New York City. Like nobody could afford their own place at first. So you just like... Right, slaves of New York. Yeah, right. And so it was during the day, one day, and we were both home for some reason. Um, and I was in the shower, and the phone rang, I guess, and it was the Sundance Institute calling me. And then Katie came to the bathroom door to let me know that I had this phone call. But I'm in the shower, and I couldn't hear her, and I guess the door was locked. And she kept trying to get my attention, and finally I was like, what the fuck do you want? I'm in the shower. I can't. God, what? She's like, you have a phone call. I'm like, I can't take any fucking phone calls right now. Tell them I'll call them back. And she's like, it's the fucking Sundance. We're having this huge <laughs> screaming fight. And, uh, and I, I, when she finally tells me who it is, I'm like, Ugh. and I get out of the shower and I pick up the phone and this woman on the other end of the call uh, from Sunday had heard the whole thing and was like totally freaked out. She's like, yeah, it doesn't sound like this is such a great time to call. And, um, I'll just call you back some other time. And like, I never heard from them again. And you know, I could have had a great career over at Sundance, but I blew it with a little domestic dispute that we had uh, at the time. Uh, toxic. But that's toxic what I think. Showers. Every time I watch this scene with magic, I'm like, Oh yeah, this is me in the shower with the Sundance. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's, it's a good scene. Yeah. Um, so then it's really then everything's a problem, right? And uh Right. Um Yeah, when he puts her in the cab yeah. and she is just melting down yeah. and, and, and she's she's not hiding anything from this guy anymore. No. I mean this is this is fucking it. Right. Oh, so here's the here's what I got about the uh, Sardine Factory. Still at the same location as in the film, Prescott and Wave Streets, just one block up from Cannery Row in Monterey. The radio station, KRML, was an actual jazz station in Carmel, whose studios were relocated to the Eastwood building at San Carlos and Fifth, in the same building as the Hog's Breath Inn, which was a restaurant that Eastwood owned. After a brief dark period in 2010, the radio station returned to the air in 2011. So there's some backstory about those locations. So Dave finally decides it's time to explain things to Toby. And meanwhile, Bertie, the housekeeper, who's maybe one half step less of a stereotypical character than J.J., but maybe not, she comes home to find Dave's house in shambles. Everything's been torn up or stabbed. And it turns out Evelyn is still there with a big knife, stabbing everything, including Bertie, in like a very psycho shower scene sequence where maybe you never quite see the knife going in has evelyn never seen psycho does she not know how to hold a knife i mean what is going on does she think she's got a machete in her hands i mean her her stabbing technique is so bad and the fact that she manages to do that much damage with that shitty of a stabbing technique Bravo, Evelyn. Well, on the other hand, we can say that she stabs the fuck out of three characters in this movie and only one of them dies. So she's not good at it. It's the it's the technique. Right. It's a bad technique. The only time she actually does it correctly is when she's got scissors in her hand. That's true. She's much more of a scissor person. She um, sure is. <laughs> but but um She's a scissor sister. But each and every time I've seen this movie and I uh, after the first 25 times I saw it, I think I remembered what happens. 
Uh, I still think that there's no way that Birdie is surviving this attack. Yeah. But me too. Yeah, yeah. And you totally want her to survive. Yeah. Like you're it's just so like, unfair. No. Right. And then she makes a you know a, a joke. Yeah. It's like oh right, Birdie. So not only now here's another here's maybe here's my one like hey this is what what exactly is going on here? Not only does Birdie survive, but for some reason Evelyn sticks around long enough to be arrested. Right. Like why is she still there? I don't know. I was surprised that 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 had happened when I saw it again. I was like, "Whoa, what?" <laughs> so hey, I just want to get something straight right off. That's not my girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If she, my girlfriend's a lot hotter than that. That's not her, right? So now, okay, Clint, an hour and eight minutes into the movie, and an hour and thirty-eight minutes into our recording. We finally get this non-diegetic music break with the entirety of the first time ever I saw your face, which is maybe one of the most beautiful songs ever. And heavy. That song is a heavy fucking song. I love that song. And her voice, Jesus, she sings the hell out of that song. Is that I a mean, Burt? It, who wrote that? Is that Burt Bacharach? It's not Burt Bacharach. I, I don't. It's just heavy because, like, you know, I saw the sunrise in your eyes and the way she says my love. I mean, and, and there's just like it's it's heavy in the way that a Roy Orbison song is heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just just amazing. Yeah. Uh, who did write this song? The songwriter is Ewan McCall. Oh, and wow. I, so it is a cover. It, it could it's uh, that could be probably the greatest cover ever recorded. Ewan, well. But maybe maybe he wrote it and she's the first one to record it. Well, I see that there's a version of of it where Ewan McCall is is uh, singing it that he did with Peggy Seeger. Yeah, well, I was going to say that uh, Ewan and McCall. It's 1962. Ewan McCall so is a, a folk singer and whose name gets mentioned every Passover at my at my parents' freedom yeah. seder. Like he's in those hippie Haggadah texts that they have written themselves. Where they say, like, in the words of Ewan McCall, and so one of the, and this this Seder that we do is, like, punctuated by, like, folk music songs every now and then. Somebody, used to be my dad with a cassette recorder, like, would hit the play button, like, once every ten minutes, and we'd sit there and listen to the next song and the Seder mix. And he wrote, I think he wrote something called The Ballad of the Accounting which we eventually took out of the Seder because wow. it was driving all the kids crazy because it's such an annoying, like repetitive, nasty song. But I'm amazed that he wrote this because the stuff, the other stuff I know about him is nothing like this. Yeah, that's what, it's a 1957 folk wow. song written by Scottish political singer-songwriter Ewan McCall for, by songwriter, for Peggy, Peggy Seeger. Hmm. That's who it was written for. So that's a cover and as far as I can tell right now, off the top of my head, that might be the best cover yeah. of all time. I mean, it's great. I'm going to share. I, I found it. I'm going to play it for us. At the time, the couple were lovers, although McCall was still married to his second wife, Jean Newlove. Mm-hmm. Okay, hang on. Here we go. Let's listen. Let's listen along. The first time. your face I thought the sun rose in your eyes oh it hurts and the moon and the stars so this is not Albert were Brooks. the gift you gave 
Let's see if he comes in. Maybe he's just playing guitar. The first time ever I Okay. Yeah, it, that hurt. That, what great chords, though. Good changes, as they say. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. Uh, okay, so we get this. We get this intermission. Basically, the movie for right. fifteen minutes suddenly becomes a Roberta Flack music video with these amazing, like desktop background screensaver images of Clint and Donna Mills. Beautiful uh, images. Yeah. Really, like too good. Like, like whoa! Yeah. Like they're they're yeah. they're they're framed against the sun and the ocean, and it's just like mind-boggling. Right. And then, and then, when that's uh, over, we get more because then they go to the Monterey Jazz Festival, and we get tons of that stuff. Yeah, the movie completely stops cold, and and honestly, the rest of the movie is ruined for me. Like I'm completely taken out of the movie, and in my opinion, the movie never recovers. Like I understand that th- there's time that passes when uh, Evelyn is uh, in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, but they should have done something else. They they could have done it in, in another way. They didn't really solve the problem of what to do because all the suspense dissipates. And I, you know, I can take it during the Berta Flack song because it's so beautiful. But once he goes to the jazz fest, I'm like, what the fuck? And I get it. You know, he loves jazz and he wanted to shoot that and he got the permission to shoot it. And there is one little bit of exposition during that scene that sets up everything that happens later that Evelyn is the new roommate. Yeah. But man, I just think it stops the movie cold and it, it never gets back for me. Huh? Well, that's interesting. I, I don't, I, I, I get that. And I think, I think I had this sense of the movie up until watching it again this week that like, there's a long boring part in the middle. <laughs> and this is what I was thinking of. Although I didn't have it specifically in my head that it's the Roberta Flack song and then all this Monterey jazz stuff. But I, I remember it as being like the part where she's suddenly not in the movie anymore. And it's just Clint Eastwood talking to um, Donna Mills forever, um, which isn't really true. But it's it's you're watching them while Roberta. But but I uh, it's total padding. It's it seems like we've got an hour long movie here. Or an hour and ten minute movie, and we need to we need to make this movie an hour and forty five. Or we have an we have an hour and we have like an eighty minute movie, but we want to we want to take mm. it over ninety minutes. What can we do? And you're right, it does it does solve try to solve this issue of her time behind bars or in a mental institution or whatever she's wherever she is. And they still don't come up with a reasonable explanation as to why she's then let out after she's number one tried to kill herself and then number two tried to kill somebody else. Um, doesn't make any sense that she'd be out so fast, and we don't really get a sense of how long. But I would say, even with all that, I dig the rest. I, when it, when the movie starts up again, I'm I'm all in, and I do think that even if they have, to, even if he has to rev it up again to get the suspense going, I think he does, and I think that that reveal of her being the roommate uh is great and i think that that scene between her and toby is is totally awesome and i think it contains maybe maybe my favorite line in the movie maybe one of my favorite Absolutely. lines in the whole in the history of movies and i don't even know if we're thinking the same one because there's actually we're like we're totally thinking the same one 
Well, there's she said. Well, there's two things she says, but the one I love is 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 when she says, "God, you're dumb." Yep. Yeah. It's great. But <laughs> that is, I wouldn't be surprised if if uh, she came up, if Jessica came up with that one herself. Yeah. So can I just tell, say she's dumb? Yeah. Yeah. It's great. It's great. And then she tops that. Well, she doesn't top it, but she also then says this other great thing mm-hmm. uh, where she's cutting her hair. And she says, I hope he likes what he sees when he walks in here because that's what he's taking to hell with him. I'm like, whoa. Yeah. yeah. That haircutting scene was also something that when I was a kid, I was like, oh, no, she's cutting her hair. Mm-hmm. Like, is it ever going to grow back? Yeah. You know, like that to me yeah. was it's a real the violation. most mortifying part yeah. of the movie. Yeah. 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 I love the outdated technology in this movie. I love Clint queuing up the reel-to-reel tape that he's going to play while he... Because he suddenly puts two and two together and realizes that Annabelle Lee is right. a... Not running out the door immediately. No, he's taking some time. He's going to queue up that right. tape. He's got no big, no big hurry. To, he's, a, he's a professional. He's a professional. Like, what? what's Carmel by the Sea going to do if they're not listening to jazz music all night? He's got to take care of them first. Dude, killing your girlfriend is bad, but dead air, that's a real sin. Yeah. So, in the meantime, uh, Sergeant McCallum arrives and immediately gets killed, much like Martin Balsam in Psycho, and even more so to me, like Scatman Crothers in The Shining, which is a Mm. plot twist that Kubrick added that's not in the book that always annoyed the shit out of me. And I was like, this is such a, I had a, I was angry at the shining, the movie for a long, long time until I, cause who's going to teach the kid how to shine. Yeah, no, that's fine. But I mean, I just, um, you know, the, all the changes that they made from the book seemed stupid to me. And I was like, Kubrick doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't want, he doesn't know how to make a horror movie. Uh This bullshit with Scatman Crothers in that. I, I still, have a hard time with the decor in Scatman Crothers either hotel room or wherever yeah. he's hanging out in Florida. And he's got those like black velvet uh, yeah. Nubian women <laughs> naked. Right. I don't know what that's about, man. That's rough. And then, but yeah, you know, I, I think this is maybe the one instance where I think like Kubrick thinks he's being a lot more clever than he actually is. And so all these scenes of Scatman Crothers, going through hell and high water to get back to this hotel only to get whacked in the chest with an ax as soon as he walked in the door. Like I theoretically understand why that's a cool move. I just think it's, there's no, it's not a good payoff. It's not, it's not shocking enough to be like, Oh my God. It's just sort of like a brother to put you through all that. Yeah. Yeah. Why did we, why were we watching all this? Well, I just got sent to me a, a 119 minute cut of the shining, uh, which I had no idea existed, uh, in England. They don't know for shit the two and a half hour version of The Shining. It doesn't exist. So Kubrick cut a 119 minute cut after it came out for England. And so that's the only one that they know. So like say, you know, the scene uh, with Danny, you know, with the uh, with the uh, child psychologist. Apparently that's gone. There's a bunch of other stuff that's gone. And I wonder how much of the Scatman stuff is gone. From what I hear, a lot of that oh. is cut out. So I've, I've got it. There's a half an hour missing from the movie. I can't wait to watch it. Yeah, I had no up. idea it existed until a couple of weeks ago. Um, I had to get it from England. Huh. It came over on a slow boat. Oh, did you get like an actual physical disc? Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, yeah. I wonder, does it have... 
does it have the the ending that got cut out of the movie entirely? No, I it, I don't think it has that. Okay. Um, no, I haven't watched it yet. I'm I I might not watch it until the snow comes back. Sure. So we'll we'll, we'll see what happens. So anyway, Sergeant McCallum gets uh, scissors in the chest. He's he's dead. Uh, and that's yeah. a, that's a good shock. I like it. The most psycho shot in, the, in in the movie, definitely. Yeah. Then Clint comes home finally after queuing up his reel to reel, and or not home comes to Toby's house. Um, right, it's Toby's, and um, he gets good and stabbed. Uh, but again, Evelyn's back to the slashing and can't really. Right. It's like they, he doesn't Hacking. really seem to be harmed, except maybe for his leg. Right. Uh, and then I appreciate that there's a really quick death for Evelyn. This isn't one of these Halloween style endless fake outs where like she's dead, but she's not dead. She's just right over the fucking cliff. And right. Like if you literally, if you blink, you miss the demise of Evelyn in this movie. Right. It seems a little quick. I like that. And it's also, it's also really ugly. I, I think that's the one point in the movie where, yes, we are watching misogynist movie. Mm-hmm. Like there's no, nothing murky about that. Mm-hmm. Like, Punching her out, I think she deserves more than that. Um, and, and I'm sure in the audience at the time, you know, they got a lot of hoots and hollers and, a, and, and applause. Like, you know, punch that bitch. But I think what Jessica Walter had done with that character deserved more than that. Yeah. Right. But not more of a beating. You, know, you said, said the virtue You signal. said he punched her out and she deserved more than that. And I was like, wait, are you saying he didn't beat her up enough? <laughs> no. She deserves a better just, fate. A better... She, right. Something better than, you know, just punching her square in the face. Like, it, something... The ending should have been something where, like, he outsmarts her. He doesn't just, you know, outbrute her. You know, it's, right. that's not the way she deserved to go. No, he should somehow like out stalk her at the end. <laughs> yeah, I mean something, something a little bit more clever. He should fake um, his own suicide and then frame her for murder. <laughs> yeah, that would be good. And then, like in the meantime, he snuck off to Sausalito with Toby, and they're living their lives. Uh, right. Well, you know, like uh, we talk about this movie's influence on Fatal Attraction. Something we didn't talk about is this movie's influence on Sea of Love, where mm. uh, you know the thriller. And it's all sort of based around a song. Um, this movie doesn't use Misty as much as Sea of Love did, but there is that one scene where, and, and, and at first you're like, is this a nightmare that he's having? But he wakes up and uh, Misty is playing on, on the uh, turntable and she's above him with the knife. Right, I forgot about that. that. she's back. And yeah. that's a scene that even up until this, into, even watching it, Yesterday, I wrote down, Clint has a nightmare where she's stabbing him or trying to stab him while he's sleeping. And then I had to say, oh, no, 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 it's not a nightmare. This is real. <laughs> That's another one that, like, as many times I see right. it, I'm like, oh, and she's oh. A- because so yeah. many movies yeah. have now followed up Play Misty, but but actually played that as a nightmare. And and one of the other things I was going to say about Clint Eastwood as a director is and, and about his discipline or lack of discipline is that... This movie... You lack discipline. This movie is almost free of diegetic music, and it's almost all told from his perspective, from Dave Garver's perspective. But there are a couple of key scenes that are not from Garver's perspective, and I wonder wonder how the movie would play if we got rid of those scenes. I think it might be equally interesting if we don't get to see Birdie's murder 
or the attempted murder of Birdie on camera. We don't see McCallum's murder on camera, and we don't see the haircutting sequence on camera. That we only discover those things when Dave discovers those things. I think that might that might be an interesting version of this movie. Yeah, but we also wouldn't get to see her uh, making copies of his keys. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I, I've thought about that too, like how it, it breaks that rule. Um, but but if it does break that rule, I mean, couldn't we have had like a sort of dress to kill style scene where she's in the hospital and, you know, she's pulling the wool over their eyes. So it gives us a reason why she would have gotten away. I mean, guess that wouldn't have worked either because you're supposed to think she's gone away to her right. new job in San Francisco. And- right. But it would have been it would have been interesting because then we would have said. And again, in Play Misty for me, what we think is a nightmare is real. And then later on, De Palma does that in Dress to Kill, but it turns out to all be a dream, right? That whole thing turns out to be a dream. That's right. That's right. In which you, when it first first starts in in that asylum or whatever, you're like, this has got to be a dream. And then you're like, no, it's not a dream. And then you're like, okay. Right. It is a dream. Yeah. Yeah. This is, well, this movie got weird. Yeah. De Palma's the guy who we should have talked about more last week. I, I don't know why I left him off of my list of directors that like meant everything to me in the 70s and 80s. Because uh, he was totally... Yeah, but I think we were talking about horror guys. Yeah. And I don't think you can necessarily call De Palma a horror guy. No, but he's got Carrie and... Total. And he's got sisters. And I, you know what? I think we should do maybe... A, interesting in the same way that I said that even middling... Lesser Romero is still really interesting. I think we should do The Fury at some point, which is maybe my least favorite uh, De Palma movie uh, once he gets going. But it's still a movie, is maybe the first De Palma movie I saw in a theater and totally loved it. And it was totally because Pauline Kael had raved about it in The right. New Yorker. Um, and it's a Chicago movie, so we should yeah, do it. Yeah, that movie's pretty screwy. I'm a big High Mom fan. Mm. Um, I was shocked at how much I liked High Mom. Yeah. I'm shocked too. Now you're gonna no, please don't tell me you like the Joe Piscopo and uh, Danny DeVito. Thing. Wise guys, no, no. Oh. That's why I was like, there's no way I'm gonna see a, a, another fucking uh, De Palma comedy. He doesn't know what he's doing. Then I saw <laughs> Hi Mom. I was like, yeah. this is great. Yeah, it, is. it is good. It's good. I only mean once he kicks in with Carrie, uh, uh, everything is great. Although maybe, maybe, maybe I like. I might. I think I like the Fury better than than Obsession. But I don't know that I can make an actual critical case for it being a better movie than obsession well when you see hi mom like all the slapstick stuff and carrie makes a lot more sense right um sorry to keep well going back to that, and he's still yeah obsession a lot of- and the fury is like really in a, a, a gray area for me as well yeah but even even sisters carries over a bunch of that slapstick comedy stuff from the early days like there's 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 stuff with charles Durning that's that's played for comedy um, yeah, there's stuff with what's her name, Jennifer Salt. Is that the actress? Yeah. Jennifer Salt. Yeah. yeah, there's some there's some funny stuff in in Sisters, and yeah. and even the 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 very opening of Sisters is very like '60s De Palma satire funny stuff. That the whole game show yeah. thing, which is totally oh yeah yeah that's right yeah. So I want to read the New York Times review of Play Misty for Me from 1971. This guy, Roger Greenspun, what a jerk off. November 4th, 1971. You ready for this? It's, it's I'm short. ready for this. Director Clint Eastwood's first movie is the story of a California disc jockey, Eastwood, who one night meets Evelyn, Jessica Walter, 
a good-looking, devoted listener who has always called to ask that he play Errol Garner's Misty for her, and begins what is to be a short-term casual affair without complications. But Evelyn has a personality quirk, a little violent streak that shows as obstinate possessiveness when she is happy and as homicidal mania when she is not. The disc jockey has a real girl, Donna Mills, and Evelyn's response to her is a one-woman reign of terror that threatens most of the circumstance and provides all the suspense of Play Missy for Me, which opened yesterday at neighborhood theaters. Both the circumstance, the handsome bachelor, the minor glamour and attractive loneliness of the media people, the relaxed nights and entrancing days, the scenery and lifestyle of the Monterey Peninsula, and the suspense recall other, better movies— And it's sad that this film, with its locale and some of its moods out of vertigo and its central obsessional action, Mm -hmm. almost an inversion of Preminger's wonderful Laura, should echo so briefly in the imagination. It's not simply that the movie fails to make sense. A lot of good movies are weak on sense, though they don't often require a leading man to be quite so dense for quite so long in interpreting the behavior of a psychotic leading woman. But they must not be weak in sensibility in that logic of emotional response that is the real motive power of the atmospheric thriller. Plain Misty for Me begins to fail with its opening title sequence, Eastwood's scenic drive from an isolated shoreside retreat to his radio station in Carmel, where each shot in the long lyrical montage seems to count for less than the one that preceded it, until the car simply comes to a stop in a confusion of place and time that a broadcast voice on the soundtrack has to clear up. The failure is never redeemed, and it extends even to the character of Evelyn, who begins as mystery and loses a bit with each appearance until she ends as mere knife-wielding mechanism for plot that that happens to need a girlish monster. The movie goes down with her, and I think the fault lies with Clint Eastwood, the director, who has made too many easy decisions about events, about the management of atmosphere, about the treatment of performances, including the rather inexpressive one of Clint Eastwood, the actor, who is asked to bear more witness to a quality of inwardness than his better directors have yet had the temerity to ask of him. The best director, Don Siegel, makes his film acting debut here as a bartender named Murphy. Siegel is pretty good, but he's no Murphy. He looks decidedly Greek. (laughs) So... There you go. So that is a bit of the sort of Eastwood bias that I grew up with. This this idea sure. of him as a non-actor almost. Like a movie star, but not an actor. But check out what Dave Kerr has to say. Mm-hmm. Was this, okay. well, was this from 71? This is from 71. Okay. Uh, Clint Eastwood wisely chose a strong, simple thriller for his first... Oh, well, I, I see what you mean. Um but Dave Kerr is always kind of a no-bullshit guy. So I, I think it's interesting what he says. Okay. I'm not sure if it's from 71 oh, okay. or if it's later. But Clint Eastwood wisely chose a strong, simple thriller for his first film as a director. And the project is remarkable in its self-effacing dedication to gaining the craft right, mm-hmm. to laying out the story, building the rhythm, putting the camera in the right place, and establishing small characters with a degree of conviction. Eastwood himself stars as a small-town disc jockey terrorized by a pathological fan jessica walter in a performance so creepy and sexually aggressive that she hardly worked again for years eastwood's directorial mentor don siegel has a bit so i mean you know you know dave kerr is always kind of a contrarian but you know he he sees he sees it slightly different than who who did you read roger greenspun a dumb dumb i think he's the guy who said that ruth gordon was no good at playing an old woman 
Oh, why do you why do you keep going to this guy? He's the guy who was reviewing for the Times back in the day. But it's amazing to me how many of these like at the time reviews. What do they call that? Contemporary contemporary reviews. reviews thank you. Uh, are so off the mark fifty years yeah. later. It's interesting, and and it's like you're talking about the bias. You know, it's like he's he's reacting against you know. Eastwood becoming a star and it has less to do with the work than, yeah. you know, but I think it's, it's so it's, it's really interesting to me. I really feel like somebody coming to this movie without a knowledge of Eastwood or anything would watch this movie and it would not ever occur to me, occur to them that he's not giving a good performance, that we're not getting the inner life of that character that we're, you know, that, that, that we're not getting enough from him as an actor to, to inform our opinions about about that character so it's 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 interesting to me no people dig this movie you know and 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 people that come to it for the first time dig it too and you know it's only because i've seen the movie so many times that that i've even thought past the fact that it's an entertaining movie yeah well we've been talking for two hours it's going to be tough for me to cut this down uh, to a reasonable thing. So I'm not even going to look at the movies that we're playing that day. Maybe you do an Eastwood and break your own rules. We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. All right. Happy Easter. Happy Easter.